first passage is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 20 to 25. Chapter 6, verse 20 to 25. In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent miraculous signs and wonders, great and terrible, upon Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land that he promised on earth to our forefathers. The Lord commanded us to obey all the decrees and to fear the Lord our God, so that, when we, might, uh, so that we might always prosper and be kept alive as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey the, the law uh, before the Lord our God, as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness. And then if you flick forward a few pages, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 to 22. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. Thanks so much, Fraser, for reading that. This means you don't have to have my voice for too long. Um, so nice to be with you again this evening, wonderful church family. Um, and as Rich said, we are doing this whole thing called Year of Biblical Literacy, Yobble. Um, and part of that is us trying to ask sort of questions and um, explore and dig deep to some of the bits of the Bible that we find a bit tricky and that we might have questions about. So that's why we are doing in just one evening this evening, the entirety of the Old Testament law. Um, when we say the Old Testament law, we actually, remain, uh, we actually mean and refer to five whole books in the Bible. Uh, you might be familiar with the Ten Commandments, the, the laws, the commands, the instructions uh, given to God's people, Israel, by Moses, you know, things that we would take probably as good advice, things like don't steal, don't murder, don't lie, etc. But actually, when we refer to the Old Testament law, what we mean are 613 stipulations and commands, instructions, uh, for uh, Israel that they lived by, that they followed, um, which are woven in to 
the first five books of the Bible, which we call the Torah, uh, which just means teachings, woven into bits of narrative, story of what's going on with God's people, bits of sort of geographical information and chronology. And it's actually some of the toughest stuff to understand, I think, in the whole of the Bible. Um, you may have been doing, as, as Rich alluded to, the... Um, daily readings, you know, the Yobble Year of Biblical Literacy readings. And in November and December, when you're in like Leviticus and Deuteronomy thinking, oh, you know, this I think was probably one of the toughest, um, maybe just me, but one of the toughest, yeah, uh, uh, bits of these daily Bible readings, reading these really bizarre to understand uh, laws and instructions. It might be that you're here this evening and actually you're just beginning to explore the Christian faith and who Jesus is. And sit tight, uh, because you might not ever have read some of these things, but hopefully, um, as you journey with us, uh, all of this will begin to make a bit of sense. Here are some of the instructions from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Make tassels on the four corners of the cloak you wear. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering, bring a dove or a young pigeon. Or there are those bizarre sort of purification uh, rituals after childbirth that we read about in Leviticus 12, or the instructions for treating infectious skin diseases or mildew. Now, if you haven't read any of those, you're definitely going to go away and read them. And I don't reckon that anyone has those verses on their fridge in their kitchen, probably, <laughs> um, or has ever seen them on one of those, you know, watercolour posters in a Christian retreat centre. Um, but question you this evening. If the Old Testament law was to be a perfume, how would it be branded? How would it be branded? What would its sort of essence be, its kind of main sense? Obscurity? There should be a PowerPoint for this, I think, yeah. Uh, totally bonkers. Morbid obsession. You know, strange religion. Uh, misogynist. Uh, musk or mist. I think there are a few of these little uh, images uh, to come up. It's safe to say that the law would have, if it were a perfume, a bizarre thought, uh, but the law would have a bit of a marketing problem, wouldn't it? And it's almost like we are the ones in that one of those passages, because of all we have to get through tonight, we're not really going to dig deep into those Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 10 passage, but it's almost like we are the ones at the beginning of that passage that Fraser read to us, you know, that the, the children who are saying, you know, in the future when your children ask, what is the meaning of all of these stipulations and these decrees and these laws? What's the meaning of all of this? Maybe you were asking that when you were reading them in your daily reading, or maybe you've asked that before. Yet, this has really fascinated me recently, Israel, the people who were given these laws, the people who were given these commands, they loved them. They loved the law. You know, what for us has a bit of a marketing problem for Israel was something they loved. There's a psalm, a really long psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119, that says, uh, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. And verse 111 of that same psalm, your statutes, it says, your instructions, they're my heritage forever. They're the joy of my heart. Israel loved the law when they're given these instructions by Moses that we read of in Exodus. They receive them with thanks. They love them. 
And there's this fascinating story in uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, where everything's gone a little bit wrong for God's people, Israel, and they've sort of turned away from God and they've forgotten who they are. And there's been a sort of splitting um, in the northern and the southern kingdom, and the temple's been partly destroyed. And then there's a king called Josiah, this, this man of God. And at the age of only 26, he sets about to sort of fund the uh, refurb of the temple. And he sends a priest in and he funds it with his money. And, and the priest in the process of this actually finds this book of the law that's been lost for years for God's people, that they've forgotten. And we don't know if it's the entirety of the Pentateuch, that's the whole of the book of the law, the first five books of the Bible, or whether it's just a portion of Deuteronomy. But it's enough that when Josiah reads it and he hears these laws that Israel loved and these ways that God has set for them to live, that when he reads it and he sees how far they have strayed from them, he tears his robes and he gathers all of Jerusalem together, all the people together, and he says, listen to this, and he recovenants the people with these laws. And then for the first time, interestingly, in years, they celebrate together Passover. You see, the law of the God um, of Moses was like a breath of fresh air amidst the barbaric cutthroat culture of Josiah's day because the law spoke of compassion, of justice, of true worship, of purity. It spoke of life. And Israel got that. And they loved it, therefore. They got that, as it says in that chapter from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6, 24, they got that they were so that we might prosper so that we might be kept alive. And Israel loved these instructions. They loved these commands, partly because they understood that it was God's holiness that was the essence of the law. If you flip to the next slide. God's holiness was the essence of the law. So God is holy. He is perfect in righteousness. He is so different from us, completely other, so holy in purity, in his goodness, in his justice. And therefore, he can have nothing to do with that which is to do with death or despair or injustice or corruption or greed. And he was calling a people, Israel, to belong to him, to know him, to be in close proximity to him. And as a result, they needed to be holy too. To worship a holy God, a God who is so other, so glorious, so holy, they needed to be holy too. So the holiness of God necessitated these laws. The holiness of God was the essence of these laws. It necessitated them having these commands and these rituals and these processes. Now, we're going to get to this and how they were for a time only and how we have Jesus now and how it has changed. But at this time... They had these uh, purification rituals that we read of. You know, these regulations, as I mentioned, for dealing with mildew um, in uh, Leviticus 13, or infectious skin diseases, or eating raw meat and uh, touching blood, and all of those other purification laws that are bizarre to us around menstruation and childbirth. And as weird as they are when we read them, and as important as it is for us to appropriate them in the light of Christ, and the new covenant, and who we are now as the people of God. They were at that time part of Israel's life to display that Yahweh, their God, was holy, that he was perfect, that there was nothing unclean in him, that he was only associated with the things of life, not of death. So therefore, where 
there was life in the blood, and where blood was spilled and no life resulted, or where there was disease or the things of death, Israel had these sort of symbolic practices to purify themselves in order to be able to worship a God who is holy. And around them, there were nations like the Canaanites um, and other, other groups who were living a million miles away from life as God intended, a million miles away from that God who is holy and who invites us to be holy as he is holy. They were doing stuff like sacrificing their children to the fire god Molech and prostituting themselves and practicing bestiality and incest and adultery to keep all these like, fertility gods happy. And they were um, abusive and a violent nation. And they oppressed Israelites. But the God of Moses, he was holy. And he was about life, not about death. He was about justice, not about corruption. And that's why... If you read them, some of these Old Testament laws are so critical of uh, mediums and witches, stuff which was associated with the cult of the dead. And actually part of their rituals would be to tattoo and to cut themselves and to trim off the hairs of their beard to put the hair into some of their rituals they would perform. And that's why we have the don't trim your sideburns command. You see, the essence of the law was the holiness of God that he was calling a people to himself to belong to him in close proximity to him, to be holy like he was holy, to show the other nations around them who were so different, who were associated with darker things and evil things, that no, their God was the God of life. Their God was the God who was the God of justice and of hope. They were called, you see, to be set apart. Nothing's changed there, has it? Called to be set apart like us called to be holy, called to be not of the world. I remember growing up, uh, my mum had this phrase for when my sister and I were naughty. Um, Whatever it was we were doing, she would say, no, girls, no, Laura, we don't do that. We don't do that. If you belong to this family, if you're a baker girl, as I was before I got married, if you're a baker girl, then we don't do that. That's not how we behave, you know, lying or snatching or whatever it was that we were doing. You know, that's, that's not our way. That's not the family trait. It's like Owen was talking about a few weeks ago about family traits. And the, and the fact that Israel didn't wear certain materials, didn't eat certain foods, the fact that they behaved in a certain way different from the surrounding nations, however much it was just for a time only, and we'll get to that, it was to show that they well, oh yeah, that, that Israelite crew who belong to the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God who is holy, the God who's about life. They, they belong to him. They're different. They're set apart. And Israel loved the law because through the law, through these things they would do, these processes, it enabled the people who were not holy to enter in and worship a holy God. But they also loved the law Because they got that not only was the essence of the law holiness, but the essence of the law was the love of God. It was God's love. And in that passage in Deuteronomy that Fraser read, it says, you know, when you're you're asked by your kids, like, what is the meaning of all of this stuff that we do, Dad? Um, What are you supposed to say as an Israelite parent? Oh, well, let's just, like, you know, ethically and philosophically reason our way through why it is that we do these things. No. Look at verse 21. 
We, are we were slaves of Pharaoh, it says, in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. You see, it's the love of God, his deliverance, his redeeming love for his people Israel, the fact that he heard their cry of oppression and that he had power to deliver them, to save them, to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. That's the reason for why they, they follow the ways that he had set for them to live. You know, Moses gives the laws on the mountain to a people who had firstly tasted the love of God. You know, love and grace precede any call to obedience. And it's the same for us today, isn't it? That it's the love of God we know through Jesus. It's his love for us first. His grace comes to us first before there is any call for us to do anything or to, you know, this is a relationship, isn't it? Not a dictatorship. And that's what's on offer for us today, a relationship with God, not a dictatorship. And he loves his people. His love is the essence of the law. So he instructs his people like any good parent. There's actually this quite and helpful dichotomy or sort of opposites around um, the whole idea of the law throughout scripture. And oh, I've been kind of thinking this week, yikes, where on earth do we start in terms of trying to, you know, old covenant, new covenant, old testament, oh, it's a lot for one evening. But one idea is that, you know, we have over in the old testament uh, the, the God of law and, and it's all to be obeyed and it's about how sinful we are and how we can't do it. And then phew, we get to the new testament and God is a God finally of, of grace and of, of love and but actually, we really miss something if we view it like that. Because woven into the story of God's people, right from the beginning, is an abundance of his love and his grace. We see it here, that he delivered his people, that he loved them, that he redeemed them. That they are, as that passage says um, in Deuteronomy 10, dear to his heart. That he loved them, that he treasured them. You know, and he's the one who right from the start loves and is gracious. And he's the one who clothes Adam and Eve when they're naked and ashamed. And he's the one who gives a Sabbath law out of love as a reminder to his people, they're not slaves as they were in Egypt. They can have a day off. They can rest. They're not sort of under the whip and have to keep going and going and going. They're not slaves. They're loved by God. They can have a Sabbath. That's why he, he institutes um, that in place for them. You know, he loves them. God loves them. So he gives them these ways to live. And every time that Israel mess up, God has put in place these instructions, which sometimes are bizarre for us, yes, but to invite his grace back into a situation where they may have messed up. It's these little moments as we read, as we read through them where, yeah, Israel get it wrong, but here's an opportunity for God's grace. And I don't know, maybe it could be that as well as all of the symbolic importance of life and blood, as I mentioned, and purification, could it be that, you know, giving a woman some time away from the duties of Israelite life after she has given birth or during her menstruation was actually gracious rather than, as we initially think when we read it, offensively and awfully misogynistic? So a holy God commands his people to be holy like he is, to be different, to be set apart like he is. And a loving God who, whose commands, whose instructions are fueled and energized with his love also commands a people to be loving, to be set apart in holiness, but to get stuck 
in, in love, to be compassionate, not to stay set apart, but as they are set apart, to get right stuck in, in compassion. So that's why we read that passage from Deuteronomy 10. Love the foreigner, love the widow, love the orphan. Don't forget, Israel, you are foreigners too. In a sense, we are all foreigners who were invited in to union with the, the Lord who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're part of his family. What a wonderful invitation. So God says, this is all from my love. So you go, you go team, and you be loving like me. I'm a loving God, that's what I do. Go, go and be loving. Don't be just set apart, but be set apart and get stuck in and love. And those are probably the bits as you were reading through um, the uh, Old Testament law that you read about, you know, taking care of the refugee, taking care of the foreigner, taking care of those who were the outcasts and the lonely and the lost, the, the bits that you read and you, you loved. And that command for us to love is because our God loves. He is the God of compassion who gets stuck in at a cost. Because you know where Israel were given these ways to live, holiness and love, whilst that was like the fragrance of the law, they failed time and time again and they stank pretty bad of despair and of death and of idolatry and you read the story and if you continue through Isaiah and you can see it there that they don't want to follow God's ways and they fail to be the people that God's called them to be gloriously set apart and gloriously stuck in, making a difference, bringing justice to the poor and to the needy, and they fail. They were lazy to God's call on their lives, and they created a bit of a punk because of it. And then came Jesus. And then came Jesus. And in him, we see the perfect holiness of God and the perfect love of God, and it's beautiful. You know, what a fragrance where we fall short in this call to be holy and to love. We have Jesus. You know, he is our righteousness. Not obedience to the law, but faith in Christ. We don't keep all of the Old Testament laws as Christians today because we have Jesus and united with him. We don't need to bring a dove or a pigeon to St. Helens this evening, thank goodness. Imagine all the risk assessments we'd have to do for that these days. Um, because of his death on the cross, because he is our atoning sacrifice, because he is our righteousness, because the Father looks on him and his perfect life. We don't need to come and bring a pigeon anymore. And we don't need to put tassels on the four corners of our cloaks, even though we do love our vintage clothing these days. Because we, to mark us out as the people of God, we don't need to dress like that because we have the mark of the Holy Spirit. We have, we have Jesus and where Israel failed and where we failed to be the people God's called us to be, holy and loving, we have Jesus. And Christ, he shows us, doesn't he, the very heart of the law? He gets right under the essence of it. He came not to abolish it, he says, in Matthew 5, but to fulfill it, to bring out its full flavor, to bring out its essence, perfect holiness, perfect love. That's why he says, you've heard it say, said to you, you know, don't murder. But I say, don't even speak an unkind word. 
Don't harbor bitterness in your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say don't even look lustfully. You know, Jesus gets right to the heart of the law, what this is all about. And that's why he heals on the Sabbath and causes outrage for the religious people and the Pharisees because actually the Sabbath was about freedom. So therefore to heal someone was a very, very Sabbathy thing to do. So Jesus does it because he gets right to the heart of the law. Do you know what, this week, as I've um, been looking through the news and Facebook and Twitter and, uh, and been sort of thinking about all that's going on in the world and comments that have made me, ugh, especially as I've been reading Deuteronomy 10, love the foreigner, love the outcast, love the lonely. I've been thinking about Jesus this week like almost as like a corrective to all of this stuff I'm reading and people's comments and you know I've, I've just been thinking about him the one who touched the leper the one who was perfectly set apart but stuck in the one who was so compassionate and so radically loving that he got stuck in to a messy world, to a broken world, to put it right. The one who mixed with the poor and the lonely and the lost. And it's a love like his that'll change the world. Fill your minds with his love when you're hearing all the stuff out there at the moment. Fill your minds with a love of Jesus that is radical, a compassion that changes nations. Because you see, Jesus, He's the fragrance of the church. Jesus, in his perfect holiness and his perfect love, he is the fragrance of the church. What marks us out as the people of God today isn't following these laws, but is being the aroma of Christ, says uh, 2 Corinthians 2.15. That's the sign of the new covenant. That passage is all about that. Where we are his scent, his fragrance, his flavor in the world set apart, but stuck in, to have a, a, this perfume of holiness so amazing that it uh, hurts the eyes, and a compassion so deep that it goes to incredible lengths to bind up the broken hearted. That's what this whole yobble out thing I was talking about last week, you know, we're, we're thinking about this stuff, all of this yobble stuff and trying to understand the Bible, not so that we can keep it in here, that would be no use at all but so that we can yobble out, not just yobble in, yobble out, take it out there. We are his fragrance in the world. We are the aroma of Christ. Set apart, but stuck in. There was a priest called Father Damien in the 19th century who um, was an incredibly inspiring man. You may have heard about him. He uh, left a secure parish ministry to join a colony of lepers. Um, on an island in the North Pacific Ocean. And, and he joined this colony of lepers and he just got stuck into the community. He started a school and an orchestra and he just lived, lived their life and was part of what these people were doing. And he, and he loved them and he had compassion on them. And one day, when he was drawing water for a bath, he couldn't feel anymore the temperature of the water. And so when he got up to speak on a Sunday to that crowd of lepers that he was pastoring, he said, my fellow lepers, now I am one of you. Now I am one of you. 
he had leprosy from his time getting stuck in, showing radical compassion. Now I am one of you. Compassion costs. To be the aroma of Christ in the world will cost us. But, you know, in a world which really stinks at the moment of greed and of self-protection, of walls, of fear, of injustice, of a, you know, Western society turning in on itself and isolating itself to, for its own good, you know, a world of godlessness, um, we are invited to be the fragrance of Christ, to bring his love, to bring his compassion, to be set apart in holiness and to be stuck in, in radical love and compassion, to go to lengths, even like that priest did for those lepers, to show the radical love and compassion. Don't forget the foreigner. Don't forget the outcast. Because, says Romans 13, verse 10, he who loves fulfills the law. He who loves fulfills the law. It's not that doing these things saves us, Faith in Jesus alone saves us. But doing them points to our Saviour. And he is altogether lovely. And he is holy. And we are called. What an adventure. What a cost, what a sacrifice. But what an adventure to be holy like he is. To be set apart, to be different. To be his fragrance. And called to get stuck in. To be compassionate. Not to dilute this. I so often dilute this invitation to be the aroma of Christ in the world. But this is a big call. You know, it's got to be a compassion, as, as Owen said a few weeks ago, that hurts our bank accounts and that hurts our calendars. Are we making those sacrifices? We are the aroma of Christ. What a wonderful invitation. And it's a love like his, in the face and the stink of greed and of self-preservation of whatever it is. It's a love like his that will change the world. How do you smell this evening? How do you smell? Like Jesus? He who loves, says Romans, fulfills the law. Why don't we stand? And we're going to have an opportunity to just have some prayer and to continue to worship God. I um, sort of was, was praying earlier and um, really felt that there are some people here this evening who want this story, the one of radical love, of, of compassion that costs, just like that priest, Father Damien, to be their story, that you, you want that to be your story and you're not quite sure how it will look, but you want someone this evening to pray for you, that, that God would fill you afresh with his spirit so that you can go and love in a costly and compassionate way. And then I also think that there's one or two or three people here maybe who because of um, a lack of understanding, maybe it's in all of this stuff as they've been reading through the Old Testament, but maybe it's that something's happened in your life and experiences, for the lack of understanding of what's going on, that you've kept God at arm's length and you've kept him at a distance because you want to kind of answer all your questions and you want to figure it all out first. But actually God says to you this evening, we do this together. Let me love you 
Let me show you who I am. So it might be that you want prayer this evening, that you wouldn't keep God at arm's length because of your not understanding everything, but actually you would invite him to come and to journey with you as you discover more of his love for you. So Holy Spirit, you're, you're here. You're with us. Come and stir our hearts and, and energize us and, and speak to us and call us and, and fill us. Lord, do what only you can do. And as God is at work stirring our hearts now, we would love to pray with you. We would love to do that. And we have some space over here where there will be people from the team to, to pray with you, to pray that God would continue to be doing what he's doing, maybe for anything that you felt stirred by this evening, but especially if your lack of understanding is keeping God at arm's length or you want a story of radical love and compassion and you don't quite know what it looks like, but you want prayer that that would be your story. So as the band play and as we, we worship God, the, the team are there, they're waiting, they'd love to pray for you. So now, now is the time. Don't go without getting someone to come alongside you and pray for you. <laughs>